And then Glinda the witch shows back up again. She's almost a fairy godmother type figure in this movie and reveals to her that she's had the ability to go home all along. She just didn't know the words. And I'm so glad that they at least had the scarecrow say, well, why didn't you tell us sooner? Yeah. <laughs> but then her answer is such bullshit. She's like, because she wouldn't have believed me if I did, or she wouldn't have, she wouldn't have known how to do it without finding it herself. And I'm like, lies all she had to do was say the right thing think about home click her heels three times and she'd have been gone you wanted her to kill another person for you um so you were trying to use her in your own machinations i think she's the real villain of this book (laughs) movie Welcome, friends, to episode 256 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Victor Fleming's 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. And so we call it Victor Fleming's film here, but in fact, there were five different directors who worked on this film. Wow. I don't know if you were aware of that. I was not. I, I, I assume this is going to be an episode full of things I didn't know because I've heard a few things, like a few things about the making of this film. I saw some special effects breaks, breakdowns for certain scenes, but um, beyond that, I, I feel like this is a movie I just don't know a lot about and I'm excited to hear more. I was just telling you, I didn't feel prepared to tackle this episode. And I think, you know, coming five years or six years into the podcast now, uh, seems like the right time, but I didn't feel prepared until really this afternoon. I finally was able to to form everything together and hopefully coalesce into something that uh, (laughs) because it's so all encompassing. There's so much that goes into the background of this and you have to understand the studio system at the time and controversy and tons of like tragic things that, that are done and accidents wow. and special effects and the way that this changed film landscape. You know, it wasn't the first Technicolor film. It wasn't the first film to use color, although I think people okay. do often say that. I wanted to ask if it was the first or if people, it's just kind of the one that people remember most. It was because it's so tied to the story in that way of that transition and using that sepia tone into the color. I imagine if you're a kid growing up, this is probably the first one you saw because it's like a children's movie. And so a lot of people who are like alive now remember watching this movie as a kid and being like, this is the first time they saw color. Yeah. I, I imagine that probably happened. It's probably a huge part of it. What a moment, by the way. I mean, e- even though it isn't, I guess, technically the first time, but what a way to introduce color into, you know, cinema in, in into our viewers and to, so many of them, at least, yeah. to have that scene opening the door into a world of color. Um, that's pretty fantastic. I mean, the moment is nothing but iconic. Like it's, it is the like a moment that just stands tall as, you know, a moment that changed cinema forever. You know, you're talking about everyone's seen it and there are studies that show that this is the most watched film of all time really in terms of movies that have been seen by human eyes this is number one and i think you know part of it has to do with the massive you know pop culture touchstone that it was at the time but also continued to be because it started to be shown on television for decades and and the way that like you know dvd releases and everything has continued to to build the myth it's wild to me that even today it feels like kids are seeing it no matter what yeah there's not a lot there to for anyone to be upset about like it's there's a lot to like 
Um, it's it, it really is a, a achievement for its time. So it also feels like an important historical film to watch. Um, I was shocked at how much of the movie I didn't remember, considering I know for a fact I've seen this movie dozens of times. It just it has been a long time. And I was realizing a lot of the times I watched it were probably like put it in during a class period because I talked last week about how it was kind of a school movie for me most of the time. And you only watch an hour. So everything plus the after the hour mark are really probably like 45, 50 minute mark. Um, that's stuff I've seen a lot less. And I felt that as soon as I moved past like meeting the wizard, like anything past that felt a lot less familiar. Yeah, that's really interesting because like you said, it, it was sort of a school movie. I'm curious to hear if any of our listeners have the same experience because for yeah. me, it was... Are they still showing that in schools? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, they. Did. I, I know for a fact they weren't when I was going through or maybe just the okay. schools that I went to. They just didn't have many movies probably <laughs> Maybe the school I went to. <laughs> One VHS of, of Wizard of Oz that they pass around between all the substitutes probably and Willy in Willy Wonka it's like those two movies and it's like one one or the other <laughs> yeah for me it was it was one of those movies that I think like my grandparents or my parents showed to me really early on and it's probably a movie that I've seen more times than many others as well it holds this really weird spot in my mind like I talked about last week where like I can't even really place it in the landscape because it does feel like this thing that's always existed um, and because it's so universal and everyone's seen it I, f- I have a sneaking suspicion it feels that way for others. One thing that I was also struck by was how different I felt about it after having read the book and how much I was, you know, realizing where the, where these ideas came from, but then also situating it as an adaptation and thinking about how the director, Victor Fleming, is that you said his name is? One of the directors. One of yes. the directors. Um, <laughs> so like, and, and maybe not just, just him, but like people involved with this movie a lot of them probably grew up reading this book, which we talked about was a sensation for its time. And it was an adaptation that comes almost 40 years after publication. So this was a book that you might have read as a kid, and now you're getting to work on an adaptation of it. And now that's kind of lost, right? We don't think about that. But like those to them, it was like an older book that they had probably read as children. A lot of the people working on this movie. I couldn't help but think about just like our modern look at something like this is thinking about Tolkien writing The Lord of the Rings in like the 50s and them releasing in the 50s and then Peter Jackson directing the films in the 90s and early 2000s and how that's years later instead of 40 years later. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's still the same kind of thing, though, in terms of like someone that material being so special to the people who are you know, who are able to create the adaptation. My, my opening had a, I mean, I assume it's in the opening of the movie in general, but it had like a little uh, paragraph about how this was a story that, you know, it felt like it was needed at the time. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was, it was clearly a, like this classic tale we all know and love, you know, and, and, and it's so funny cause I just feel like now that's not really the case. Now everybody just knows the movie. Yeah. Impact of this film too. I mean, like endlessly, copied and referenced inspires people i'm sure like you know you talked about how inspired you were by lord of the rings to become a filmmaker and how many people probably felt that way after seeing this i i just can't imagine that like everyone of like a spielberg generation or even before that after that just the the ways that it, it's like i said it stands as this like beacon of filmmaking and and, and that moment and what it represented like pre-world war ii and american filmmaking and yeah well it comes out during world war ii um, 39, I guess it's before America entered the war, but still like the war was on and like that had to be a, just a scary time. 
And it felt like they were trying to say, like, this is a movie that you can share with the family and it's going to make you feel good. A little bit of a throwback to, to to simpler times with thinking about farms in Kansas in the early 1900s. Well, in a 40 year old book, you know, everybody, let's think about how we felt as kids. Let's revisit this book, this story. And I do think on this viewing and and based on a lot of my reading, I, I've come to land on sort of why maybe this story touches so many people. And it is that that sense of childhood, I think. And it's that the no place like home and the way that, you know, everyone, it's this bittersweet thing that everybody eventually does leave home, but there's always going to be that familiarity. And um, that I think that's part of the return to normal that happens at the end of the story. There is a, a shift in theme a little bit in this film adaptation versus what I was getting from the book, which I want to, I want to sort of circle back on as we progress through it. Um, and then also there's some there's some interesting changes that were made that also recontextualizes the entire story to me um, for this film version. And, and the effect of those, I think, will be interesting to discuss. Specifically, I'm talking about all of the things that the film does to set up this conceit that the whole thing could be a dream. Probably has a lot to do with the fact that it's more approachable for people who aren't as accustomed to fantasy to instead of Dorothy actually going to a world and that she clearly comes back from physically right. less scary for parents too. Yeah. So they, they can be like, Oh, it was just a dream rather than like having to explain what Oz is to their kids. Cause their kids probably would want to go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think it has something to do with like fantasy of the time and, and maybe making it more palatable. And, and again, that's maybe a move that made it broadly appealing. Yeah. For, for anyone. Well, and it changes the story a little bit. That's something I want to revisit too. Oh, I did just want to say, if you're curious about L. Frank Baum and the book and everything that went into the writing of it and uh, the history of that, listen to our previous episode. Um, we're going to be focusing mostly on the film here, making some comparisons. But yeah, for Book Talk, the previous episode. And just while we're talking about Baum, I did want to mention a couple of things that we didn't mention last week. Okay. Um, I read that in 1898, Dorothy Lewis Gage was born to the brother and sister-in-law of Maud Gage Baum, wife of author L. Frank Baum. And when little Dorothy passed away five months later, Maud, his his wife, was uh, heartbroken. And he named the main character in the story, Dorothy, after that family member. I didn't see that. You know, that's that's great. You know, there's so much stuff. That's a, that's a really interesting note. Yeah, I, yeah. I missed that one. Also, one other thing, MGM paid $75,000 for the film rights to L. Frank Baum, a towering sum at the time. Well, he was dead, but to his estate, probably. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about Victor Fleming. And then, you know, I will talk about the other the other directors and other people involved creatively. But Victor Fleming was an American film director, cinematographer and producer. His most popular films were Gone with the Wind, for which he won an Academy Award for Best Director and The Wizard of Oz. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Gone with the Wind, <laughs> the other most successful iconic film from from this era. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. <laughs> um Fleming has those same two films listed in the top 10 of the American Film Institute's 2007 AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies list. So two of the top 10, according to AFI's list in 2007, which those two movies are as big as they are. I don't think you're going to argue with that. And they're iconic. He served in the photographic section of the United States Army during World War I and acted as chief photographer for President Woodrow Wilson in Versailles, France. Beginning in 1918, Fleming taught at and headed Columbia University's School of Military Cinematography, training over 700 soldiers to cut, edit, shoot, develop, store, and ship film. Filmmakers that participated in the program included 
Josef von Sternberg, Ernest B. Schoedsack, and Louis Milestone. He showed a mechanical aptitude early in life while working as a car mechanic. He met the director, Alan Dwan, who took him on as a camera assistant. He soon rose to the rank of cinematographer, working with both Dwan and D.W. Griffith, and directed his first film in 1919. Wow. Imagine being a camera operator back then, right? Versus what you do now. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I, I um, have been, I, I have a um, film camera, like a rangefinder that I've been playing with recently, and I've been getting really into film. And, and just when we get into talking about how they achieved the look in Technicolor, uh, it blows my mind, just like the technology of the time and, and to be able to develop these kinds of techniques. It's just it's the kind of like invention that I can't fathom how you even go about thinking of the process. Um, yeah. Ingenuity, right? It's just un- it's it's like you're a, not only are you like an expert in the field of cinematography or f- photography in general, but then you're also inventing new techniques. And it just feels like a space that, you know, it's an inventor space more than anything. So. Many of his silent films were action movies, often starring Douglas Fairbanks or Westerns. Because of his robust attitude and love of outdoor sports, he became known as a man's director, in quotes. However, he also proved an effective director of women. Under his direction, Vivian Lee won the Best Actress Oscar, Hattie McDaniel won for Best Supporting Actress, and Olivia de Havilland was nominated. Kind of notable because he, he is known for directing Gone with the Wind and and um, Wizard of Oz and is a quote man's director action movie kind of person and um, but he, I also read that part of the reason he wanted to work on The Wizard of Oz was he wanted something to create for his kids which right. I think we've seen time and again uh, parent creatives uh, going out of their way to, to help create content for their kids which yeah. you know I think is very cool a spectacular thing comes out of that so yeah that's cool I, I do have an admission to make I'm realizing uh I said uh, I'm familiar with Gone with the Wind, uh, but I didn't say I saw it. I have yeah. never seen. I have never seen that movie. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. It's it's one of those cultural. It's like Casablanca. Yeah. It's like all the other Which ones that you seen. absolutely have to see. Yeah, you, I, I assume you'll see it at some point. You should you should go out of your way to check it out. There's a lot of those classic films I haven't seen. You know, and, and like I blame my teachers. Right, show that next time instead of uh, right Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's probably less engaging to a bunch of children. I would imagine. Yeah. In the opinion of veteran cinematographer Archie Stout, of all the directors he worked with, Fleming was the most knowledgeable when it came to camera angles and appropriate lenses. He was remembered by Van Johnson as being a masterful director, but a tough man to work for. Okay, yeah. Which will come back, obviously, to all right, interesting. play a part in the story of this film. Sort of an unusual choice, but Fleming did get a name for himself in MGM as sort of a savior for films. Like films that seemed like they were struggling and needed some good direction, they would just move around the parts. And that's, that's you know, nowadays we have filmmakers that come into the studio system and they work alongside the studio system before they were under contract and they were almost told what they were going to work on. Um, and, you know, I'm sure they had some say, but honestly, like, some of the time they didn't. And and a lot of actors, you hear stories of actors being locked in contracts and unable to work on certain projects and being blacklisted and things like that that happened back then. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot about classic Hollywood and like the studio system. And it's going to sound like we're, we're like almost, uh, I don't know, lionizing it, but we're not. Like it, it's, oh, no, no, no. it's interesting, but also like there was a lot of problems. There was a lot of inequity. There was a lot of, there's all kinds of shit going on back in that day. So I think it's just interesting to think about the like the the culture around filmmaking at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, it was larger than life. Like it was the the whole idea of the silver screen being so large and going and sitting in a theater. We made these people larger than life and people treated them that way and people got egos and and yeah, people didn't treat people correctly. Obviously, we look back at a lot of the stuff now. Like I said, this person Fleming is known was known as a masterful director, but tough to work for. And we go on to see that be the case for you know decades and decades, still even today. Yeah. Um, as much as this film sort of changed the landscape, there's a lot of stuff that went on with it uh, that was not okay by even the, those days' standards. But uh, we'll get more into that in a second. He was he was known as the savior at MGM, and he actually didn't finish this film. He shot most of the principal photography of this film, left to go save Gone with the Wind. Wow, okay. Yeah. But then he's still credited as the primary director, I yeah. assume. Did these other directors like get any credit? When like so if if one comes in after him, sounds like were there so there were three before him? So uh, I'll give you I'll give you the rundown. Five film directors. Richard Thorpe shot several weeks of material, none of which appears in the final film. He originally had a vision that had Dorothy in like a blonde wig and the scarecrow looked different and he shot that stuff. And then basically when he left, uh, the studio found his work unsatisfactory and appointed George Cukor temporarily. Cukor did not actually film any scenes. He merely modified Judy Garland and Ray Bulger's makeup and their costuming in general. So that's the second director who had say honestly that change that was that sounds like it was a it was a good change because because okay. apparently Dorothy's makeup was very doll like and like a uh, little girl trying to make her look very, very young, which they, they obviously were trying to do even with what we got here. So Cukor did not film anything. He adjusted makeup and costuming. Victor Fleming took over for, for him and filmed the bulk of the movie until he was assigned to Gone with the Wind. And then King Vidor filmed the remaining sequences, mainly... Wow, they got royalty on this thing. <laughs> yeah, right? The, the Lord, King... Uh, so the remaining sequences, he mainly shot the black and white parts of the film set in Kansas, the storm, and he shot Over the Rainbow. So wow. hugely iconic part wasn't shot by Victor Fleming. Yeah. Um, producer Mervyn Leroy also directed some transitional scenes. So that's okay. the fifth. Oh, okay. So like it comes in for certain scenes. Interesting. Yep. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I can't begin to explain to everyone listening how much there is about this subject, by the way, and how it can get super complicated. I'm trying to keep it surface level and digestible yeah, you can't get so it if all you of want it. to go read more about this there's like encyclopedias worth of information about it and all kinds of you know testimonials of people who were there some of the munchkins that kind of stuff yeah we're, we're gonna do our best to touch on everything we can but i promise you that 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 production process that five directors isn't isn't uh usually conducive to a good film and it usually is a red flag that things are going wrong and it's it's not going to work out but somehow by some miracle this film came together in in the way that it did and and you know stands at, to this day as one of the most iconic american films ever yeah i wanted to ask you so you said the black and white sections mm -hmm. and I was thinking while watching that, like, these sections look different to me than any other black and white film I can think of. They look sepia-toned. They are, yeah, sepia-toned. And and I'm like, that doesn't seem like the typical look of a black and white film of the time. Am I, am I wrong about that? Or was that some sort of choice they were able to make? That comes down to color processing and something that we get into with the way that they shot in Technicolor as well. But basically, when you shoot a film... Your sh the the light comes through the lens and it and it exposes a celluloid strip, and that strip is a negative, and then you have to get the positive of that and you color you color treat it based on what you want it to be. Some of the time you don't, 
if it's black and white, it's black and white. And sometimes that's how the, that's how the, the positive would come out and it'll look black and white. What they do here is they do like a, a sepia bath basically. So they process okay. so it. So they're deliberately making it look that way. Coloring it. Yes. Okay. So what they're, they're doing it. And I think it's evoking that sort of Western. Yeah. I was going to say, that's what Kansas looks like. Apparently I drove through it on my way out to Oregon and I, yeah, I guess I missed all the sepia tones. Everywhere. You didn't have your, your <laughs> sepia sunglasses on that were giving you that look. Also notable, 14 writers, we'll get back to the coloring, I promise, but uh, 14 writers worked on the script of, of this in addition to five directors. So just the, the number of hands that is passing through and the studio has an insane amount of input. So the studio obviously took the director off, put another one on. They're changing things left and right. They're demanding certain things. And I'm sure everyone's heard stories about what Judy Garland had to go through. I am assume that we haven't. I'm just going to say, because I've forgotten a lot of them, and I, I'm going to speak for our listeners, because I'm sure there are some of our listeners who know next to nothing about what went on with this movie. So, I mean, just to start, a couple of things that come to mind. She was referred to some of the time as a fat cow uh, by studio executives and, and just people in general, which I can't even imagine why they're thinking that. Well, regardless, it's a terrible thing to say to a person. Unbelievable. Yeah. Especially someone who's starring in your film. Yeah. It's toxic shit, yeah. Yeah, super toxic. Anyway, that's that's honestly the most tame of the things she had to go through. They had her in um, basically corset. How, how old is she at this point? In this? 16. 16, okay. They had her in a corset to, to flatten her chest and make her look younger. That was so uncomfortable she could barely breathe throughout the production of the film. Wow. Um, we'll get back to this, but the way that the process of the film, they're shooting three different film strips in the camera, and it, it requires a lot of light, so the lights that are being set up in the studios got up to like a hundred degrees at times. And so you think of some of the costuming that people are in, she's in this thing yeah. and she can barely breathe and it's a hundred degrees. Um, there are reports of MGM employees or executives or whoever who were also making sure she was shooting speed and to, to wake her up in the morning and, and her like shooting that speed, her, like the drug, the drug. Yeah. Wow. Shooting her full of speed and then tranquilizers at night to put her to sleep so that she could get enough rest. Whoa. She was, um, I want to say that she was introduced to a certain drug by her mother that was like, I, a problem is I don't know enough about a lot of these drugs, but yeah, some sort of drug that was like a pep drug, like some sort of peppy drug that keeps you like up and, and energized and things like that. So, you know, just riddled with, with uh, 16 year old drugs and they're just drugging her. Jesus. Dealing with, yeah, all of this and, and, um, supposedly like some of the munchkins were like trying to like would like get handsy with her and stuff and and like you know in these scenes wow. where there's like tons of people all around yeah. her uh, she she went through a lot with this one and and like had a ton of pressure on her and and the studio didn't treat her like a human being to be perfectly honest from everything i saw it doesn't sound like it and so anyone who allowed all this to happen you know is at fault in my opinion yeah. you've got creatives above directors um all these executives yeah. Nobody, nobody was doing anything for the well-being of the actor in any way. So, I mean, you've been on, you've been on some sets like this, or not like this, but like you've been on sets, <laughs> and like, um, does that ultimately fall to the director? Would you say, like today at least, like is that ultimately the director's responsibility to make sure this kind of shit isn't happening on the movie? So the director works very closely with talent, but usually in more of a performative way, like like they're not performative on the director's part, but they're they're talking about the performance, right? And they're sort of. They know each other well, the director and the, and any talent, usually main talent. I would say that there are a lot of producers, like there's typically um, like your second AD, second assistant director, and then uh, there's people who work very closely with talent and that's their job is literally just okay. to, to like, I don't want to say handle talent, but they're 
they are basically assistants. I assume they need to bring any problems to the director and like let them know in case that you know the director misses it or doesn't know. A lot of weight, I think, is given to the director um, in terms of what people think the responsibility of a director is. And there are times that the director is, is not the end-all be-all on the set, and they're more of the creative vision. And we also know that this is one of five, so... right. Not to forgive anything to Victor Fleming. I'm not trying to do that. Yeah, there are other people in place. There are producers and, and people who deal directly with ta- casting directors and people who deal with yeah. talent. So it sounds like a, a, a toxic culture was surrounding this movie almost. Like the studio system at the time enables stuff like this to happen. I mean, like there's a reason that actors have agents too. Like they, yeah. if something's going on, they talk to their agent. Their agent gets in touch with the person who's in charge of talent, whoever on that specific production. Like there, there are a lot of different avenues. And at this time, they took a lot of studio system took a lot of power out of the out of the hands of a lot of the artists so yeah just could take advantage of them yes exactly yeah so yeah i mean there's other stuff that goes on with judy garland um we'll continue to talk about that uh but i mean let's talk about other things while we're talking about bad stuff that happened on the set so there are a lot of famous things that that went on with costuming and other like unsafe practices that were going on on the set i'm just going to rattle off a bunch of them so we can get through them um ray bolger was originally cast as the tin man However, he insisted that he would rather play the Scarecrow. So the person who was originally playing the Scarecrow switched with him and that his name was Buddy Ebsen. Uh, Buddy Ebsen didn't know, but when they were using the makeup on the Tin Man, the, the paint that they were using contained aluminum dust, which ended up coating his lungs. He also had an allergic reaction to it. One day he was not able to breathe and had to be rushed to the hospital. And basically they immediately replaced him. They, they got another actor to replace him. Wait, wait. You, so is, who appears in the movie? Not the person that I'm talking about. Oh, okay. Jesus. Yeah. MGM gave no public reason why Ebsen was being replaced either. Uh, the actor considered this the biggest humiliation he ever endured and a personal affront. When Jack Haley took over the part of the Tin Man, who is who we see in the film, he wasn't told why Ebsen had dropped out. And in the meantime, the Tin Man makeup was changed from aluminum dust to aluminum paste as one of its key components. However, Buddy Ebsen's vocals remain in some of the songs, such as in We're Off to See the Wizard. Huh. Yeah, I had heard that about the paint. I guess I always, or something about the paint with the Tin Man. I knew that was one of the problems, but I guess I thought it was the guy who was in the movie. I didn't realize it was like a previous actor who got replaced. So there was also problems still with with some of the paint that they use on other actors as well. I think maybe even Jack Haley dealt with. The Wicked Witch of the West leaving Munchkinland. There's the scene where she shows up and you know, talks to the, the, the good witch and, and Dorothy, and then she leaves and there's a fireball. Fire, fireball and smoke, yeah. right? Yeah. The smoke was supposed to go off around her, and it came up early on the first one and started forming basically on the platform she was supposed to be on. They did a second take of it, and in the second take, her, her cape catches fire. Margaret Hamilton's cape uh, catches fire in the platform, and a burst of fire appeared. Her makeup heated up, causing second and third degree burns on her face and hands. And it was later discovered that one of the key components in her makeup was copper. The producers used the first take. You'll notice the early appearance of the red smoke if you watch the film. So they only got two takes. The first one they used, even though it kind of was a bad take. And the second one she was severely injured on. Wow. Damn. How, like, I guess I'm asking, like, how serious a lot of this stuff was. Because we hear about these injuries. I mean, that sounds really serious. Um, But was she able to continue filming? Or was this at, like, the end of the filming? or, Or what? And then... You know, similarly with the paint, like, is this stuff that gave people lifelong problems or was it just like a momentary irritant that, that they were okay from? 
I mean, I assume that it gave people lifelong problems. If you get burns, second and third degree burns on your face and hands, yeah, like the copper stay. and you, you talked about the copper and the paint. Like, what is that? I'm not a doctor, so I don't know what that I, does. I think <laughs> it was just like that it heated up and was oh, on your face. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Getting metal on your skin and stuff can just be bad. It's like a like sure. a toxin almost. I didn't look into it on a medical level in some of these cases, but all of these things show they're not paying attention to safety, obviously, with this. Yeah. Um, or they don't they don't know enough about it and they're just playing fast and loose. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely happening as well. There was also the famous poppy field scene that has the snow falling in the camera. Yeah. That uh, was made from 100% industrial grade chrysothile asbestos. Oh, great. Uh, despite the fact that the health hazard of asbestos had been known for several years. Oh, geez. Yeah. And I did go do some reading about asbestos and, and uh, actually... My partner, Caitlin, sent me some stuff about it. And asbestos, when it gets in your lungs, is the perfect size to where your lungs can't remove it. Your lungs yeah. have two different styles of, of filtrating things out. And it's too small for one of them and too large for the other one. So it stays in there and just continues to puncture the insides of your lungs. Oh, and uh, people say that obviously with cell reproduction, anytime cells are being created, um, there's a possibility of mutation and then cancer. So... It's been, you know, mesothelioma has been linked. Yeah. All this kind of stuff. You see the commercials about it for sure. Yep. Yeah. So, so they're just pouring yeah. that. You think about how much snow was on there was them, a lot. In that scene on all the Jeez. actors. Yeah. All right. So we talked about a ton of bad stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll, let's talk about a couple of the good things there. There, you know, this film did extremely well. It made a lot of people's careers. Judy Garland, you know, continued to sing somewhere over the rainbow is basically her theme song for the rest of her career. And she went on to be wildly successful after this film. Just real quick, like watching that moment. And I was thinking like, wow, what a, what a iconic performance, what a great song. And it's so popular and it feels like it's always been there. I had to look it up. I was like, is this from something else? And she's just, no, like th this was a song performed by her in this film. And that's what it's famous from. And it's so good. Like, that's probably, I don't know. I wanted to ask you, like, ultimately what your favorite song is in this movie. But yeah, it's hard to not pick this one for me. Like, it's 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 amazing. It's that one. It's the performance. It's the emotion, yeah. the, what she brought to the role. I read Roger Ebert talking about The Wizard of Oz and how um, Judy Garland brought this, like, wide-eyed wonder and also, like, vulnerability and... A certain amount of pain too to the role yeah. you, that you you pick up, and even in that you can tell that she's sort of lonely. Especially in that performance, yeah, yeah, she's lonely. The and longing, she wants something more, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and and you know I catch a lot of that in the performance as well. And she, I mean, it's just an entire, super iconic. You also have we're off to see the Wizard of Oz. Obviously, is like really so good. Yeah, I I was really struck with how good a lot of these songs were and how much they hold up. And they're you know they're not like. They're they're fun. Like so many of them, like have a very particular job to do within the within the film. But like they do it well. They nail it. The the music is still fun to listen to, um, and it still serves the moment well. Like nothing felt super dated. There are a few parts in the movie where I was like, oh, and you know, maybe they wouldn't do this kind of thing today. I did think there was a little bit of like radio voice going on with some of the performances. Which, sure. which you associate with like this time period. Yeah, vaudeville and stage play and that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, so that kind of thing, like as soon as you hear that, you kind of realize, oh, this is an old movie. Um, but like the version I watched on HBO Max was on there, you know, with my subscription and it was really clear. It's probably the clearest I've ever seen this movie as far as like being able to like 
obviously see the matte painting backgrounds, see, you know, that, you know, stuff's plastic, stuff's, you know, clearly not real. But I was thinking about how, like, you know, as a kid, I'm watching it on VHS, probably, like, 15, 20 feet away, and uh, everything looks real, you know? I, a lot of these sets, like, I could see they're in, you know, they're on a set very clearly, but I remember as a kid, I was kind of transported. It's it's funny, too, because, like, the being on set is part of the movie for me. It's, like, it, it does, like, that's Oz. It yeah. doesn't have to necessarily, like, for me, it doesn't have to abide by our rules of what looks like a set and doesn't, because that's, like, kind of baked into it at this point for me. Okay. <laughs> Can I can I bring up one of my favorite effects from the entire movie? Are we sure, is this yeah. a good time? Okay. It's early in the movie. It's the it's the twister. Oh yeah. Unbelievable how good that looks. And I watched a breakdown um a little like a couple years ago about like how they did that and I, so I know it's like a practical effect that they were able to pull off somehow. Um but man does it look good and even even now with like that crystal clear like I'm almost seeing too much now. That effect still worked. And I'm looking at it in the background of the scene, and it looks like it's out there in a field just wrecking havoc. And I'm thinking about the technology at the time, and I'm like, how did they do this? Um, and I know that some really amazing uh, ingenuity went into the creation of that scene. Yeah. The uh, the tornado itself was a 35-foot-long muslin stocking. It was spun around among miniatures of a, of a Kansas farm and fields in a dusty atmosphere. Uh-huh. Um, the way that they use perspective works really well here. And uh, yeah, I totally agree. It looks really good. And the way that they did, I mean, you can kind of see where I was coming from last week when I talked about how terrified I was of a ki- as a kid of these cyclones that we were seeing and of the monkeys. Definitely, I can see this. This scene is scary because the way it's yeah. like wreaking havoc in the background. Um, and it's just looming out there. Yeah. Dorothy's running through the house and it's putting, it's blowing windows out and stuff. Yeah. It was scary. That was a scary moment for sure. A couple of other fun things that I wanted to make sure I mentioned. Judy Garland found it difficult to be afraid of Margaret Hamilton because she was such a nice lady off, off camera. So Margaret, Margaret Hamilton is, is the wicked witch. Right. Um, so that's fun to know that, that she was actually like a great person. And I, I read that she was reluctant to do the scenes where Miss Gulch attempted to take Toto away to be yeah. put down because she she has a lot of fondness for animals. Uh-huh. Um, so that was like a hard scene for her to film. So I, I don't know. I just really liked hearing that. What a, what a moment too. I was just thinking about how like, this is dark. Um, she's talking about destroying this dog. So cute. The Toto, like Toto, I don't know if it was multiple dogs were used or it was just one or what, but such an amazing performance from a dog. But also they are throwing that dog around in some of these scenes and like yanking on them and just like, they asked a lot of that dog. Now, it's one of the most iconic dog performances ever, so I'm hoping you're not going to tell me that, like, three dogs died in the filming of this movie, um, but it, I'm well worried. <laughs> so uh, the dog's name is Terry. Okay. Uh, she lived a very successful life, even post-Wizard uh, of Oz, but at one point in the filming, during the scene when she sneaks in with the the trio yeah. as their guards, I right. guess one of the guards accidentally stepped on on Terry at one oh. point, and, and she was out of filming for, like, three weeks or something with like a broken leg. Wow. I mean, it doesn't surprise me with how seemingly reckless they were being with that dog in some of these scenes. I mean, up to 14 takes where you use some of the time to get the dog to do the correct things in the performance. But like even in Somewhere Over the Rainbow, when the dog's like sitting up on, on the tractor when she's singing and, and like it reaches its paw out and it's like, Clearly so well-trained, but still an adorable dog doing yeah. adorable dog things. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Best performance in the movie, maybe. Judy Garland and, and Terry uh, Terry uh, yeah. giving the Toto performance. Definitely a good one. But uh, the way that even like 
it would just keep up with them at times and scuttle into frame. I'm like, all these moments made for just magical and, little details. And I was just looking at like when they're fighting over the dog and talking about what, what they're going to do with it. Like Dorothy is clutching the dog, like, you know, like, like trying to get away. And then they're like taking the dog away and they're just being kind of like herky jerky with it. And you see it's a real dog. They didn't replace it with like a puppet or anything. Like, this is the real dog throughout. There were a couple times they did use like a, a, a stand in. Really? But yeah, most of the time there's a real dog. It there. looked like a real dog. I, I, you can tell when it's a real dog. Okay, yeah. yeah. I was like, that's still the dog. And they're they're tossing that thing around between them and shoving it in the basket and like all this stuff. I was like, oh, boy, I'm a little I feel a little worried because I know that uh, there weren't a lot of rules in place protecting animals on sets. You know, right back in this time period. Uh, all right. Last thing I wanted to talk about with Margaret Hamilton. She appeared on Mr. Rogers Neighborhood decades after the film released in an attempt to demystify the iconic villainess she played so well. Quote, witches are just nice ladies like me dressing up in a costume and playing make believe because it's their job. But they're no different than you and me. Hamilton said, yes, I can see witches are nice people playing make believe and are no real threat to us. Rogers parroted. I like witches now. This was an attempt to soften Hamilton's terrifying hag image and let the public see she was a real person. But alas, it was to no avail. Hamilton claimed in interviews that even after this, children, when they saw her on the street, would run away from her screaming for years and years. For the rest of her life, really. She never got past that. Uh, And you can see the Mr. Rogers interview. It's out there. uh, I've seen it before as well. And it's great. So for such a nice lady to be defined by such an evil role. And what a performance it was. Yeah. But really unfortunate it's so over the top that like i guess if you grow up on it i bet it's a lot of kids who saw her when they were young and it's so scary but like to me i was just like this it's so over the top and just heavy heavy handed i guess i'm trying to say there's no one around anymore that wasn't kids when you know when when she was the witch and stuff but so like you know as time went on it, it had to have been a lot of kids reacting and even up into their adulthood but that was another thing that it's a little morbid to think about but i couldn't help but just like sit and think about the the you know the legacy of something once the everyone involved with it all the actors all the people that were there all the executives have passed on how it's still seen as this this you know iconic film and and piece of popular culture yeah now it's an, now it's ancestors of people who who are still around yeah we talked about this a little bit with our frankenstein coverage and i know we've done a couple other very old films but um it is kind of odd when you start looking at it and going like every one of these people is long dead every everything i'm seeing now is long gone you know it's like yeah, it's kind of a it is kind of a morbid thought, but it's it is like this that that also means it's like it it, it is an encapsulation of a moment and it has its had its time and now you can look at it truly as a piece of history, I guess. And it's what those people would have wanted, I, I assume, right? Like the performers and everybody. That's why they did it. They they part of it was that they you know they loved it and they wanted to be remembered for these roles. So the fact that we're still talking about it, I'm sure they're thrilled. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So. I want to switch back over and talk about some of the technology that was used here. Um, Technicolor. I'm going to try to make it as as easy and simple as I can. Basically, it is film that they're shooting, but there are three roles all all flowing through cameras simultaneously. One of them with the intention of capturing red, one of them with green, one of them with blue. You know, RGB. We, We talk about this even today with digital technology. You blend those three colors together and you can get most other colors. Um... So they're shooting negatives with the with the hopes of capturing those colors, and then in the dyeing process, they're they're dyeing three different sets of film of the same film, one uh, with using cyan, one using yellow, and one using magenta dyes on these, and 
then they combine them into one image, which is like a process of, it's called like die pressing basically. And they're taking the three rolls. And when you stack them basically on top of each other, you're getting that full spectrum of color that we see in this film. So it's really a massive, one massive camera that's running three three reels at the same time oh. that are then processed together using red for one, blue for another, and green for another. And then you get your, wow. you know, your full color space. That's so cool. And part of it, you know, and you get different looks, you get different, you know, we talk about color correction today, you get different, you can, I can give you more of a warm or a cool of any color, you know, you can, you can fluctuate and, and mess with like highlights and, and black levels and things like that. But, and so what they're, what one of the huge processes here is that color is that uh, transfer process because they're the blend of dye that they're using is going to inform how it looks like the specific look of the film. Um, so it is really cool to think about like early color correction and that way of like dyeing things together and, and getting a, a, like a cohesive look. And that's different than how color is brought out of film today. Right. I assume it's fundamentally different. Um, you'd be surprised how it's kind of similar. I mean, are you, are you kind of dying it still in that way? So shooting raw is basically what you're doing with digital now is you're getting ones and zeros that are telling a computer what color that's supposed to be. Right. And then in post-production, the the software is basically able to read that information. And then you are able to go in and, and adjust your levels of really R, G, and B. Yeah. Red, green, and blue to, to fluctuate it and, and to like lean in into certain directions. And, you know, that can that can range from like your greens of the matrix to your, you know, your Breaking Bad sort of like orange tinted mm-hmm. New Mexico look or your you know, Mad Max Fury Road, oversaturated look, like all of these things kind of have a lot of the same techniques. It's not the same because you're not dying anything. Right. But the, the idea of, of the way that you're able to change color is kind of fundamentally similar. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I talked about before, they had to have tons of light on this though, because there's three different film strips that needed to be exposed correctly. So like way, way more exposure than you would ever expect in another film, which, you know, at the time they're bringing in massive, you know, hundreds of pound lights and setting them up and shining right at actors. So incredibly hot. And then you think about the costuming. Even today, I always hear about how, how much light it seems like much more light is required than I imagine on a lot of film sets. Like it, it seems like there's all these bright lights around that I don't even realize. It's it's it can get crazy. I mean, like depending on the scale, you know, there are the, the like you know people are sometimes replacing the sun, trying attempting to replace the sun with giant sources, one yeah. single source to, you know, there's stuff like that that's going on. And then there's really subtle stuff where they just like you know they're just bouncing a little reflector onto the side of somebody's face. Mm. Um, so lighting is it's an it, you know it can be really complicated and it is really complicated honestly. Yeah. But um, it's a whole that's a whole art in and of itself. Totally. Yeah. yeah completely. That's amazing. So another person that we should definitely talk about is Noel Langley, who was the wrote the screenplay, a scriptwriter, the one who's credited in the film mostly, even though there's 14 people who it went through. Um, principal screenwriter and basically in the credits as the adapter, they're the person who adapted this work. There were revisions to his material. Langley was incensed that th- that that had been done and walked out on the project several times, although he was always persuaded to return. He was bitterly resentful of the final screenplay and is on record as saying that he hated the finished film when he finally saw it. However, years later, he changed his opinion, calling the film rather sweet. I wonder what it did. He ever say what it was that he hated about it? What they changed? I'm wondering if this like it was all a dream thing was something that it was his idea of that was introduced because that's something I can see 
somebody being very frustrated about it was a change from the book i don't know that's just speculation i guess i, I don't know I'm not sure. Yeah, it's very possible. There was a 1933 cartoon short uh, and it features a black and white prologue in Kansas, uh, just the way the film would later be. It's also a musical and it features a brown haired Dorothy wearing a blue gingham dress, just like the film would later. Gingham? Yeah, it's gingham, I think. I've never heard that word before. Yeah, I think it's gingham. Uh, So yeah, obviously people say Victor Fleming and MGM were definitely influenced by aspects of this animated film. Yeah. Uh, And just the nature of a musical in this film, even though I I do think there's a point at which you can tell the director change or things are cut. It's another thing we haven't even talked about. An insane amount of this movie was cut. It was like a two hour runtime that cut out like 40 minutes. And there are some continuity things here and there. Yeah. And some other things that go on in the film that you can you can pick this out of. We don't have time to get into all of it, but there's definitely a lot there. Uh, The whole whole musical sequences and there are other refrains in certain songs like in um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow and other ones. Things were just cut, 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 cut. Wow. Um, So it just goes to show that they were shooting a lot here and just trying to fit the pieces together and, and make the puzzle work. Wow. All right. So let's talk about some of the plot. Starting out, we get Dorothy. She is obviously feeling isolated and like she uh, wants to leave home, kind of. And yeah. she meets she meets this uh, quirky traveler. Yeah. She interacts with the three farmhands, um, which each have their own introduction in which they in some way reference what is going to happen. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, talking about needing brains, um, the, the guy who I think would be, be the tin man mentions wanting to have a statue in town of him and he kind of does like a statue pose. Um, and then you have, uh, the guy who jumps in after her, after she falls in with the pigs and here he, he's the cowardly lion that we see later. And he was a very over the top performance the whole time. Um, and I think that's partially by design. Like you want these three to be these like larger than life, colorful characters that everyone who's watching likes. Um, and, uh, then they, when they reappear in the dream sequence, which is essentially what Oz is is framed as in this in this movie, um, you know, you're they're familiar faces. So even as you're like far from home, you still have that like familiarity. The performances are so big and broad, and they are these are comedians of the time, comedians yeah, and vaudevillian sense. actors. Yeah, and- I, it doesn't doesn't all land for me today, but I can see that it was at the time considered very good comedy. And it's kind of crazy because at the time people absolutely loved this. Like they they thought these performances were transformative, like just unbelievably good. Yeah, and so I mean, and and there's a lot of there is a lot of good stuff there. Don't don't get me wrong. Plus, like the physicality that a lot of these performance brought to like, I'm thinking about like each of their introductions. Um, and then even throughout their performances as, as uh, the scarecrow, the tin man and the lion um, so physical and there's such physical comedy going on. Um, and the, you know, the way scarecrow, right. He's, he's like falling over and just like, he's so stumbling and awkward. Um, you know, you really start to believe he's filled with straw and then you get the Tin Man who can be so stiff and robotic. And like, I'm thinking about the leans he was doing, which I assumed were like, you know, it reminded me of like a Michael Jackson performance, right? Where you find out later there's some sort of uh, trickery going on, but it looked so cool, right? Um, and then, yeah, I mean, and then the lion as well, like jumping around on all fours. Like that has to be hard to do. It is hard to do, yeah. And some of, some of the time they would swap in stunt actors but for the most part you can tell when it's them you know yeah well a lot of time they're singing and stuff while they're doing it so you know that it's just like a 
yeah, a level of, of, of stuff they have to be able to pull off. And with the introduction of the lion, um, Judy Garland was so um, taken by the lion's performance uh, that uh, she just couldn't stop giggling. And this is one of those times that I wanted to call back on what we talked about with Victor Fleming being difficult to work with because she just kept breaking this sh- shot, breaking the shot and, and laughing through it and giggling through it. And he eventually took her to side, gave her a lecture and slapped her across the face. Jesus. Yeah. And this is another one of those things that's like famous now that like he slapped her in the face and then they got the take. Um, and so Fleming was afraid. And this this part I'd never heard before, which okay. tries to, I think, paint him in a, in a better light. But he slapped somebody in the face yeah. for a performance. So so it's not OK. A child. Um, and, and, you know, the time period, there was whatever. It was more normalized, I guess. Yeah. But I, I again, this isn't this isn't OK. There was a weird I mean, and still today, there is sometimes this weird sense of like, Adults are allowed to just hit children. Children, yeah. so that, that might have been going on a bit too. Like, oh, she's a child. I'll just slap her. But Fleming was afraid that this was going to damage his relationship with Garland, and he was yeah, whispering, <laughs> basically telling a coworker that he wished that he that someone would hit him because of how bad he felt. And then Garland overheard this, and she basically said, "I'm, I'm not going to hit you in the face, but I will give you a kiss. I'm not going to punch you in the nose, but I'll give you a kiss on the nose." And then that was to show that she bore no hard feelings. Okay. Uh, of the whole situation. So again, I mean, it's being the bi- she's being the bigger person there. Power dynamic there as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, props to her for being the bigger person, but you know, it's still messed up. She had to deal with that. And by all accounts, that's the really tragic thing that goes on with with Judy Garland's life. Like I, I think I've seen a documentary, and and there's more that I that I'd like to read about her, but we just could not cover all that with, yeah. with all this yeah. other stuff in the episode. But she she lived a pretty tragic life. She died very young. I think she died at like forty something. Oh really? Like yeah. And, um, you know, I think it had something to do with addiction and just, you know, but, but the thing is like, she is such a, like a luminous performer and she is so like positive, it seems, um, you know, in front of others. And so that's that, you know, that legacy lives on as, as, as far as she's concerned, I think everybody just, she just, you just love this person immediately. No one, you know, no one would ever have an ill feeling about her. And that comes across on screen. She seems so likable. There was something I mentioned last week that this is somewhere around the same period when we get introductions. I believe it's the introduction of the of the Tin Man around that time period. Last week I mentioned that there was a hanging munchkin. Yeah, I I, I didn't I couldn't find it when I was watching, but I didn't like rewatch every scene. But I was like, he he mentioned something about somebody hanging. I didn't see it. So this has become it's a it's a myth, okay. but it's become a legendary myth that everybody loves to talk about. At the end of the sequence in which Dorothy and Scarecrow first meet the Tin Man, as the three are marching off singing, we're off to see the wizard, there's a disturbance in the trees off to the right. This was long rumored to be one of the crew, or by some accounts, one of the Munchkin actors, committing suicide by hanging himself. In fact, it is the silhouette of a crested crane stretching its wings, as several large birds had been allowed to wander the background to lend the appearance of mysterious creatures lurking in the woods. A close look reveals the bird's black-tipped wing as the bird reacts to the actors passing by. The crane is spotted in the background several times. Yes, I spotted it. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, what is this fucking bird? (laughs) The conspiracy was distributed enough for Warner Brothers to edit the footage and in all official remastered versions since 1998, the hanging munchkin, in quotes, is gone and the stork has been digitally colored bright pink so that it cannot be mistaken for anything else. However, further confusion grew in the 2000s when an unknown person released a short clip of original, in quotes, original enhanced footage in which the stork had been entirely erased and a clearer image of a hanging human form edited in its place. The urban legend of the hanging munchkin, while false, persists. Wow. 
Okay. I wanted to ask you about the munchkins. I mean, since this is a decent time to bring it up. Um, I, I saw a lot of children out there, um, but I assume there was also a lot of like just small actors. Uh, yes. Yeah. Many of the munchkins came from Europe. Um, they were Jewish and, and a number of them took advantage of the trip to stay in the U.S. in order to escape the Nazis. Oh, wow. Actually. Um, professional singers dubbed over most of their voices. Yeah, I noticed um, that. As many of them couldn't speak, speak English or, or sing. Uh, so yeah, they're, I mean, they, I think they amassed like 124 of them or something like that. Uh, so that's, you're seeing, and then they filled out some of the scene with children as well in the background, more background actors. But uh, speaking of sort of not treating people correctly, according to Jerry Marin, who was a munchkin, the little people on set were paid $50 per week for a six day work week while Toto received $125 per week. Wow. I mean, we've already, I, I, let's not take away money from Toto, but yeah, no. <laughs> more money for them would be good. Yeah, I agree. That That's pretty messed up in general. The, the Munchkins sequence during that song is so good. And, and I was thinking about like the lollipop guild when that part breaks out, like it's so unexpected. There's so many, that song. Those, those kids freaked me out as a kid also, by the way. The, the we represent the lollipop guild. Yeah. <laughs> I did not. I was not okay with that. <laughs> Even today, it freaks me out. And right before that, the, the girls come out, right? And and what is the name of theirs? I wrote it down somewhere. It's Oh, the, they're like dancing. Um, the Lullaby League. Yeah, they come out and they, they represent the Lullaby League. And then it's the lollipop guild. And it's just this like little like aside that almost changes the song before returning to, you know, like... That's such an interesting song, and like it, you know, it's it's probably somewhere over the rainbow or this one, honestly, because it's so much going on. And then we're um, we're off to see the wizard, follow the yellow brick road. I put a, a clip of that on our social media accounts, and there's a just a really cool moment in that song where these strings come in, and it almost sounds like a different key, and then the, then it returns to the to the um, follow the yellow brick road. I don't know. It's so cool. Like I, little details. I was noticing this time listening to that song and how good it was. Um, and then yeah, the I love the decision to have it be like that uh, swirling beginning as she literally oh, yeah. starts right at the very terminus of it and then follows yep. it all the way around. That's so cool. So you mentioned over the over the rainbow. I did want to. I should have mentioned this already, but it was almost cut from the film. Wow. MGM felt that it made the Kansas sequence too long, as well as being f- too far over the heads of children for whom it was intended, which I disagree with. Yeah. Uh, the studio also thought it was degrading for Judy Garland to sing in a barnyard. So like they were too proud of their of their performers. They're like, never should she be seen in a barnyard or something. Some you know something weird like that no <laughs> god they're wrong they ended up cutting it down a little bit and there was actually another she when she's captured in the witch's castle there was a scene where she sings it again and so, and reportedly when she sings it again uh garland began to cry and the all the crew everyone it was like one of the most emotional days on set is like she gave this amazing performance of the song again yeah and they cut it why <laughs> God damn it. There is there, this is all part of that cutting down and and MGM's hands yeah. in the, in oh, the pie. Man. It's a children's movie, so it can't be longer than you know some yeah. fixed. Number. Over the Rainbow was ranked number one by the AFI um, of 100 Greatest Songs in American Films. Yeah, I mean you, you you listen to it and you just realize that it's greatness, right? Like that you're listening to greatness, you're watching greatness. You know, sung by her, like it's not it's not a you know someone else brought in to be the singer. This is Judy Gar- Judy Garland singing this incredible song that we all know, and you know, yeah, she is trapped. The three companions, the the lion, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow, all go back to save her. And there's these. We get the introduction of the Winkies, 
And um, there's this chant that's been in my head since I was a child. Oh, yeah. That they sing when they're marching. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. People have people have thought for years that it's all we own. We owe her. Oh, we love the old one. Oh, we loathe the old one. <laughs> Lovecraftian. <laughs> yeah. In the scripts, uh, it just says extra long shot and the guards marching around the courtyard. So there's no there's no way to know what it actually was. But the Wicked Witch of the West Castle Guard chant, which is that winky chant, um, has been incorporated into the songs. I'm that type of guy oh, yeah, by yeah. LL Cool J. A Metallica song. Go ahead. I was I was getting there. Freight ends, freight ends of sanity. Yep. Hey. The freight ends of sanity <laughs> Metallica. Games by the New Kids on the Block. Low by Todrick Hall and in a faster form, Jungle Love by Morris Day and the Time. Yeah. So I remember it from the Metallica song because I'm, you know, metalhead. And so I remember that chant coming on and like it was a while, I think, before I made the connection to this movie and realized that that's what they were doing. It's the kind of thing that like, again, referenced like endlessly. It's just it's so ingrained in, in popular culture yeah. that, you know, Metallica made a song that references it. Like I, I had to mention that for your sake. That is so cool, man. And what a sequence uh, to me, that sequence. I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but I figure everybody knows the plot of this thing. That was one of the like parts of the movie I just had no memory of. I'm watching it. And I'm like, I have zero memory of this happening. It's very reminiscent of um, the the uh, being outside the Black Gates in Lord of the of Rings. Of course, yeah. I guarantee that Peter Jackson had that in his mind. Yeah. Like, there's no way. Because, yeah, I agree. When I just when I saw it, too, I was like, this is literally feels like <laughs> yeah. Sam and Frodo are going to crawl down this mountain with Gollum. Yeah. And then it's amazing. is like it, they do it in a very bumbling way where, like, the guards jump them, but then they get the best of them. But basically, they beat up three guards, take their uniforms and dress in disguise and infiltrate the tower. And I was like, I do not remember this happening in Wizard of Oz. <laughs> There's another story that I've got to make sure we get on recording. Okay. Um, when the wardrobe department was looking for a coat for Frank Morgan, who plays Professor Marvel and the Wizard, decided it wanted one that looked like it had once been elegant, but had since gone to seed. They visited a secondhand store and purchased an entire rack of coats from which Morgan, the head of the wardrobe department and director Victor Fleming, chose one they felt gave off the perfect appearance of shabby gentility. One day, while he was on set in the coat, Morgan idly turned out the pockets of one and discovered a label indicating that the coat had been made for L. Frank Baum. Whoa. Mary Mayer, a unit publicist for the film, contacted the tailor and Baum's widow, who both verified that the coat had at one time been owned by the author of the original Wizard of Oz books. After the filming was complete, the coat was presented to Miss Baum. Wow, that's so cool. What a what a serendipitous moment. That's incredible. And I was just thinking about the, you know, that just reminds me to, to situate this as an adaptation and like a lot of the stuff we've talked about were changes. The songs, the songs aren't in the book. I didn't even like really think about that, but like all these songs, they're not in there. Um, the the sequence where they have to infiltrate the tower, that's different in the book. Um, instead, we get 10 man chopping the head off of 40, 40 wolves, but um, different things. <laughs> Can't believe play we out. didn't get that in this film. Yeah, I know, right? Honestly. <laughs> he didn't chop a single head off in this movie. In fact, the only time he used his axe was to break through a door, I noticed. He didn't even get a chance to use it against the flying monkeys, which that flying monkey sequence, I'm sure that you were thinking that I was uh, how I talked about last week. I was terrified of it. It's still terrifying when they rip apart that scarecrow. <laughs> yeah. And he's like laying terrifying. on the ground and he's like, Oh, and he's just like a head. He's like, Oh, his <laughs> guts are coming out. Yeah. And then, and then we got, uh, the tin man didn't even get to use his axe. No. He like immediately gets dragged away. So many little moments. I just want to shout out. I was thinking about when they first meet the wizard and the, the, the shiver acting they're all doing. <laughs> 
Yeah. They're all shivering so much, and like especially the Tin Man, something about the like boxy nature of his torso as he's mm-hmm. shivering and shaking. Like it's I, I don't know. It just, he looks so scared, um, but also scared in a comical way. So it doesn't scare you as much as the viewer. You're like it's over the top scared, right? Yeah, it's kind of like the the lion constantly, like the repeated gag of the lion trying to run away, but then having to carry him back in. Yeah. Speaking of the lion and the scarecrow, just to talk a little bit about them. So that 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 costume, the lion costume, weighed ninety pounds. It was made from real lion skin and was obviously very hot. Real lion um, skin. Had, yes. Jeez. Two two <laughs> oh lion skins stitched together. They had to. It had. He was soaked at the end of each day, so they had to constantly have people drying it overnight to get it ready for the next day. Yeah. And according to crew members, it reeked. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> the scarecrow's oh, face makeup was a uh, rubber prosthetic and woven patch uh, pattern fabric. And by the time the film finished, the prosthetic had scarred patterns into the actor's face. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And that, that was looking at that mask and going like, you repurpose that for a horror movie <laughs> in you know, in the seventies and it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's what they did with the, uh, you know, the Kirk mask. Yeah, exactly. Famously is the Michael Myers. Yeah. 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 So, so good. I want to touch on another change um, that I was thinking about. They, they introduced the witch early, right? The witch, the wicked witch of the West shows up, has a confrontation with Dorothy at, you know, at the beginning of Oz. And then throughout, we touch back in with the Wicked Witch and we see her machinations and we see her um, lurking literally like behind a tree and like, you know, <laughs> like she's like in the scene. Right. Um, but that makes her scary and it makes her omnipresent. It makes her, um, you know, throughout it like adds some tension because, you know, that there's this evil figure planning and plotting against Dorothy. And I was thinking about how that that's just a really smart change from the book that doesn't do that because I was kind of surprised how late. We hear about the witch, but then how late we actually meet the witch and see the witch do anything. It, it really occurs pretty late in the book. I mean, yeah, having that having that presence around and that performance, too, really does create that sense of dread in a kid or, or the, the impending doom. What about the sky writing? <laughs> I always thought that was such a funny moment. She's up there like writing out like two, like a whole long sentence about <laughs> Dorothy. <laughs> yeah. It's shooting black smoke out of the back of her uh, out of back of her broom, apparently. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. <laughs> the miniature work in this movie is like for the time period, pretty incredible. Yeah. Like, you know, you have the house flying in the tour. In the tor- tornado you've got the these witch. little miniatures of the witch flying around uh originally there, there's something cut there as well originally at the end that there was going to be smoke underneath that said or die oh and they just felt because uh, that's that's one of the things i should have mentioned as well a lot of the cuts that happened from this uh, line up with what i've been talking about how terrifying this is for children they felt that even for audiences adult audience members the the witch's performance originally for the full run was much too terrifying so they had to dial that back wow. throughout the film yeah I- that's kind of a shame. Like I would, I just want release the uncut version. Where is it? Are are these cuts out there somewhere in someone's vault? I bet you there it's something out there. You know, yeah. There's there's pictures on set. You know, I mentioned the original director who had Judy Garland in a blonde wig and the different scarecrow costuming. There's pictures out there of these things, and you know, all this stuff is like lore and iconic like cinema lore at this point. So yeah. I'm sure that somebody's got a hold of some of the prints. I don't know if it'll ever see the light of day, but. Oh, I got a question for you. So when they get to the Emerald City, there's the horse of a different color gag where we see yeah. the horse literally changing colors in different scenes. Mm-hmm. I, was that some sort of toxic paint that killed every horse that Thank touched? <laughs> Thanks for bringing this up so that we can address this. Uh, 
No, it wasn't. Okay, they treated they treated the horses better than they treated anyone else. Okay, good. <laughs> this was Jello crystals. They put Jello all over horses. There were multiple different horses, and it's funny because these scenes had to be shot very quickly because the horses would start to lick the sweet Jello <laughs> off themselves. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. So, I, and honestly, it looks very cool. It on is camera. cool. Yeah, it's, it's a funny it gag. The horse of a different color. For sure. And you notice, obviously, that throughout the movie, Frank Morgan plays like six different roles, right? He yeah. plays the person who's singing the song. He's the person at the he's gate at the when gate. they open the yeah. gate. He's the wizard. Yeah. He's the, you know, Cap- Professor Marvel. Professor Marvel, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting how much he kept coming back. Um, and it's kind of explained in the, the fact that it could be a dream, right? And that she could be just kind of recasting him in different roles in her, in her mind. Um, I wanted to shout out um, and, and just discuss, honestly, there's a song that the lion sings while they're waiting to go see Oz, where he's talking about becoming king of the forest. I it It's simultaneously like my least favorite song in the movie, but also like I can't stop thinking about it. Um, yeah. But it's weird, right? It's a weird song. It's also the last song in the movie. Really, the last like big, big piece. Interesting, because I, I think they revisit. We're off to like something. There's like one song that they revisit. I think later, but it, it's probably not like a whole new number. Yeah, it's just notable that they kind of stop the musical, and it becomes more of like about the adventure yeah. in the fight that they have coming up and getting back to Kansas and all the other yeah. things. So during that sequence, um, he, I had, I had subtitles on. And I noticed that, like, without subtitles, I would have found half of what he's saying almost indecipherable. Um, he's using words like kowtow and genuflect and, like, all this stuff. And I'm like, this is a children's movie. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's really funny when the rhymes, the, the words they use to rhyme sometimes are, are like, shouldn't work. Yeah. And we're just okay with it. Yeah. Well, that's a, that is a common thing in poetry and songwriting in general. It's not like they invented that. <laughs> Where, like, people just pronounce a word way wildly just so that it fits the rhyme. Yes. It just fits the right. Yeah, yeah. That, they definitely did a lot of that. But then also this whole sequence, I was thinking about how cool it is that um, the Tin Man and the, um, and they've been doing this throughout, but the Tin Man and the Scare- uh, Scarecrow are just like down. They're like down for this little fantasy he's having about being the king. So much so that I think the Tin Man smashes a, p- a flower pot with his axe or maybe smashes on the ground. And he takes it and makes a little crown. He puts it on him while he's singing. They have this like rug on the ground that he wraps up and ends up becoming his like raiment as a king. Um, and like that whole thing happening while he's doing this weird song, that was really cool. And just like the chore- choreography of that, the storytelling about how they've all come together and they're all so excited about what they're going to get now. Um, and of course, it, there's like a, the comedic moment of like they immediately get shut down right after they have this whole this whole well, thing. And, and we've talked before about the nature of musicals, right? And how like you know you've mentioned in the past that you're you're not super accustomed to them. And it seems like maybe the more we watch, yeah, I don't the, watch a lot of them. The more you get accustomed to it, though, because that is sort of the idea of of each musical number, right? right. It's like it's like it's delivering part of the story that we're getting verbally. Obviously, it's kind of and it's calling back to like old styles of verbalizing stories yeah. and just telling people stories or stage plays and then doing it in a really over the top and performative way to show off like multiple different facets of, of like the art form. And, and in this case, because it's a fantasy, it fits more. Whereas in some of the time I, I you know, people talk about it being jarring for certain types of stories and things like that. But yeah, I mean, I, I appreciated this, this movie more on, on this viewing as a musical. Because again, like I, it's I almost never categorize this film as anything, as a fantasy, as a musical, as because it just feels so entirely its own thing. It's just, it just the Wizard of Oz. It yeah, it's just the Wizard of Oz. I get it. Yeah, the musical element is so important, right? And the songs are so good that um, yeah, I, I agree though. When I think about musicals, it's not normally the one that like pops into my head. 
some of the success of this film is uh, due to the the TV run, and I want to talk about that really quick. Okay. Um, it made its television network television debut in 1956 as the series finale of the CBS anthology series Ford Star Jubilee. The broadcast was a smash, but the film was not shown on TV again until 1959. In a programming stroke of genius, it was decided that it would air an hour earlier uh, as a Christmas special independent of any anthology packaging. This broadcast attracted an even wider audience because children were able to watch, and from that moment on, the film began airing annually on television. Uh, It aired first on CBS, then NBC... And then again on CBS, where it finished its network run of nearly 40 years in 1998, after which it was officially integrated into the Turner Vault of Motion Pictures. Wow. That's probably some of the stuff I've seen then, that that an- annual airing, yeah. And this is probably one of the main reasons why this is the touchstone that it is in, in popular culture. is like the, the, the advent of television, network television at home, and seeing it annually, seeing a film like this that's so beloved... It just stayed until the 90s, 98. Yeah, it's amazing. And I was just thinking about how that's something we've kind of lost a little bit. Like there is still appointment television. Like speaking of uh, The Last of Us is is right now a show that I'm like watching as every episode drops and how thinking about how fun it is to have that and have that like cultural moment as we all react to something. Um, I love it. Yeah, And how rare that is. One of the things that I love about sports is that it's one of the few things where that still happens, where you're watching something live and there's like a community reaction to it. Well, and that's like the the argument for films to remain in theaters too. I think that that becomes an event moment as well, where you yeah. you know you go out of your way to go watch something like that all at the same time. But bringing it back to TV, right? Like, this is something that if you're born, you know, if you're a Gen Z population, like you probably don't know anything about this kind of television, right? Like this network television that everybody was watching. You know what I mean? Like, there's only so many yep. channels, and they'd show this movie, and pretty much everybody had it on. And it's 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 hard to think about everybody doing the same thing, but there just weren't options, you know. Yeah, forty four million people watched this. Uh, per like like the first, I, th- I believe the first time it aired, forty four wow. million people were watching. So so to put that in context of less people in America, and there just are there's nothing that's getting that kind of viewership yeah. these days because the the you know the viewership is so segmented and so you know in its own niche. Yeah. Well, let's move into the end of the movie here because I have thoughts about this final sequence and and, and what leads up to it. So we get Dorothy accidentally splash water on the witch, which kills her out of nowhere. Um, I've always felt like this is kind of a weird death in like cinema. Um, It just comes out of nowhere. It's not established. Now, in the book, I think there's some mention of her being like super dried out and like some implication that water could be dangerous. But um, this comes out of nowhere in the movie, right? Um, She just dies. (laughs) Well, what happened? And like it's an accident. Um, she's trying to put out Scarecrow and accidentally splashes her. But it also removes any sort of onus from um, from Dorothy. She didn't kill her. It just was, whoops, you know. So I guess there's that. But then we get to return and we get we get the wizard reveal. And I love the moment where he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain as he's like going into Incredibly the Incredibly iconic, iconic line. Iconic yeah. line that we hear so much. And I was thinking about the, the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and like how that's something you hear all the time. Like there's so many moments from this movie that you don't even realize. It's like, oh yeah, that's from this. I mean, even I'm melting yeah. that you're talking about right now. I'm melting. Oh, so many things that the witch says, you know, my pretties yeah. and, you know, talking about yeah. your little dog too and like all these you know so many things right ding dong the witch is dead that's from this movie mm-hmm. um amazing um but yeah so the wizard he gives them all like 
meaningless baubles. <laughs> this time I couldn't help but view it as a bunch of bullshit. It's like yeah. he's just bullshitting each it's of knick-knacks. them. He gives them little knickknacks. He says, I'm giving you a diploma in thinkology. That's what he gives the scarecrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so many funny things that are like some commentary being made here too. like the, the, he's like, we, you know, we have universities and we have this and that. And he gives them a, and then and then immediately the scarecrow is like trying to talk about like the Pythagorean theorem. Yeah, or something. Yeah. It's like completely wrong. And it's awesome. <laughs> And then, you know, what, what does he give? He gives this, like, fake heart that's like a ticking clock to the Tin Man. And then, um, what, what does he give a medal. courage again? A medal that says uh, courage yeah. on it, I think. Yep. <laughs> From the order of something, something. Courageous. Yeah, something. it looks like he bought them all at the dollar store. I'm just, just laughing as he's doing this. Now, if it is established for this character that he is this, like, huckster, if we're, if we're taking it to be the same as this, you know, the professor from earlier. Um and it's funny for the audience as like the the adult audience I think who kind of gets that this is all bullshit. But um, I also think that it's the moral of the story, right? right. Is like that that you know they had it all along. Right. These things like while they if might you're being charitable, <laughs> yeah. They it, it's you know it's poking fun at the fact that like it was there all along. They all know that they have it. They've all they all should have realized it by now. And he's just like giving them permission to right. do so. So he they all go. To, you know she's going to take her with him on the on the balloon, the hot air balloon. Toto jumps out. She doesn't end up being able to make it, you know, just like the book. And then Glenda, the witch, shows back up again. She's almost a fairy godmother type figure in this movie and reveals to her that she's had the ability to go home all along. She just didn't know the words. And I'm so glad that they at least had the scarecrow say, well, why didn't you tell us sooner? Yeah. <laughs> but then her answer is such bullshit. She's like, because she wouldn't have believed me if I did, or she wouldn't have she wouldn't have known how to do it without finding it herself. And I'm like, lies. All she had to do was say the right thing, think about home, click her heels three times, and she'd have been gone. You wanted her to kill another person for you. Um, yeah. So you were trying to use her in your own machinations. I think she's the real villain of this book <laughs> movie. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. You know, I laughed when she said that. It's kind of funny and quaint. But but uh, again, like, you know, it's it's like, what is it? The in this hero's journey, you get the, the character, the fairy or the mentor, the mentor, mentor character, yeah. character knew that this character ha- needed to go on a journey to appreciate home, to appreciate the things she has and, and for her to go on that journey, which you know, storytelling wise, we know that, but you know, it's funny for them to have to, because I think nowadays we expect more explanation and like motivation yeah, uh, with our characters. And, and for, it's just funny to look back at stuff like this. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're kind of overanalyzing a children's movie, but <laughs> yeah, but, but they're always like, because of reasons, that's why. You yeah, know? Exactly. Because we, we, that would ruin the whole story if we if I told you, um, they're saying goodbye. And um, she's like going to each of them, talking about how she's going to miss them. And then she gets the scarecrow and she's like, I'm going to miss you most of all. I know. What and the hell? I was like, they're standing right there. <laughs> like, that's a backhanded compliment. But I wanted to, to talk about some of the shifts that this starts doing at the end, because the message that Dorothy takes away is that if I want, like, I'm not going to look out uh, past my own home when I, if I'm yeah. feeling like I, you know, am, am dissatisfied or that I want to you know, seek adventure. All I got to do is like look around me and find it in my home. I don't need to go anywhere. I've learned my lesson. Let's go home. There's no place like home. I'm never going to leave. I'm sorry that I upset my my Aunt M. You know what I mean? Like that becomes the message of the movie at the end. Don't go anywhere. Be happy with what you have. Be happy with the status quo. And uh, don't question your parents. Like I don't It's like so weird because this movie that's so, so wondrous 
and it opens up the imagination for like what could be in the world for so many people and then to have the movie's final message run so counter to that and be like actually no don't stay home <laughs> it reminds me of some of what we talked about with um epic poo oh yeah the michael moorcock essay the hobbits and and this the idea of the shire and, yeah and like some of the conservative values that are in that but also like uh you know you think of the hobbits in the way that they're like don't leave you know don't go on an adventure why would you want that that's kind of i think maybe there's some of that at the time where people were like you know yeah our lives are great. Just stay at the farm yeah. and why, well, there's no need to travel outside of this. Yeah. Stay with your family and we're here for you. That urge you have to go on an adventure, if that's bad, don't, don't, you know. Right. And I think maybe that, that they, they were catering to that, but yeah, I, I, I was, it's kind of an unfortunate last moment yeah. to leave off on. Cause to me, I'm like, you know, I take away the adventure right. of it. I take away like what's out there. And I think most people do regardless of what they're trying the message to be at the end here. I don't think people walk away with that message. Like this is right. a movie about adventure and about, getting away from a boring home, right? Like she goes back to Kansas and she, it's all sepia again. She lost color. She literally loses color in her life. Like how can that be seen as like the ultimate goal that we should all want? It's almost like she's she's done her adventure. She's gone yeah. out and sown her wild oats and now it's time for her to settle exactly. down and, you know, forget everything else. Which is really weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. Yeah. And then, yeah, we get this reveal that she wakes up in bed and they're like, oh, you hit your head and... And she starts saying, like, oh, I had this dream and you were there and you were there and you were there. She starts pointing to all the people who gather around and the movie fully leans into Oz was all a dream. She cast all these people in her real life in different roles. This was a fantasy she had while she was unconscious. And um, now that she's awake, she's still going to have learned from it. How do you feel about this? Maybe one of the most famous it was all a dream endings of all time. And and we know it's a change from the book. So how do you, how do you feel about that? How I feel about it now is different to how I felt about it when I was a kid. I think it w- there was something more novel about yeah. it when I was a kid. It's kind of a fun reveal. It's like oh a mystery. Sure. Like oh yeah, those were the same people. Yeah, it's cool kind of connection. Like you said, the same people. And and I as a kid I didn't notice that yeah. until until the end of the movie. At one point she even says like oh you're so familiar when she first meets I think Tin Man and Scarecrow and I got that that was yep. a reference to that. And so now I see it more of like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a convenient way to make it more palatable to a, not, a fantasy, an audience of fantasy goers that weren't very accustomed to a lot of the, the trappings of it. And so, like, it grounds it more. A lot of times people feel like the rugs pulled out from under them with, a, with an it was an all dream ending. Like it, like, it almost makes it so that nothing that happened mattered. Um, now, they're saying it still matters in their way, but like if it's all not real, then you feel like you've been hoodwinked in some way. You know what I mean? Like it's it's you feel like you've been tricked and a lot of people don't like that feeling, um, but I don't see it leveled as much about this movie. So it seems like everybody is OK with it or maybe it's just so old that like it wasn't as much of a cliche at that point. I think that's probably but more of what it is. Yeah, I would just say, like, if you're a writer out there, don't think you're going to be able to get away with writing many stories that end with a character waking up and revealing it had all been a dream because that doesn't go over well. <laughs> right. In in wrapping up here, uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to note. Maurice Sendek, who we covered yeah. for Where the Wild Things Are way back when. He's a you know noted children's author. Amazing guy, too. He, in an interview, once said that The Wizard of Oz is the rare example where the movie exceeds the book. Okay. You're setting us up for our final vote here. I think most would agree with we'll that. Be, we'll be the judge of that. But yeah, we, that's our job. Uh, back <laughs> off. <laughs> Are we ready for that, or do you have any other little details? I mean, I have other details. We could go all night. We could we could uh, have an entire podcast just dedicated to this. But another one more last thing that I'll note is 
Um, with the success of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, MGM actually wanted to have a response to Disney, and this was their response. And interestingly, Disney was working on a on a Wizard of Oz story as well, but MGM happened to own the rights and was starting to get it going. And basically, Disney backed off and let let them have Wizard of Oz and and let it go on in its current form. But you could argue that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is part of the reason, which is a former project is why I'm referencing it, uh, that we covered, is part of the reason why we got Wizard of Oz. And, um, you know, there's some interesting similarities with the stories. Well, you, we talk about like with Frank L. Frank Baum wanting to write his modern fairy tale uh, as opposed to the darker Brothers Grimm. And of course, you know, you go back to Brothers Grimm and, and possibly even older being the, the, the origin of Snow White. Um, so there's some interesting parallels there too. One thing I wanted to to say was that um, I was thinking about like how lit Halloween must have been in the years that followed this movie coming out. <laughs> Everyone was dressed like, like a lion. I, well, it, or or any like anything from this movie. Like there were so many things you could dress up as, and it was a you know one of the early color films, and it's something all the kids are watching. So it had to be like so cool to come out with your your scarecrow costume or to come out dressed as Dorothy with the ruby slippers. You know, like there's so many cool things and they did so much with costuming and color and um, design that makes this movie stand up. And uh, yeah, today I feel like you could still dress as any of this. And, you know, I've even seen, you know, people walking on yellow brick roads dressed as Dorothy, you know, like, you know, stuff on Instagram and stuff that was taken recently. Like it's still a thing today that people celebrate and uh, cosplay as and all that stuff and like how cosplay has become such a big thing today but like back at this time I'm sure it wasn't a big thing so it's interesting to think about I'm curious if there was a you know a bunch of kids just dressing up like all these different characters in the years that followed I'm sure that's cool I would have loved time to talk more about like the production design and the costuming and all the other things that went on to this some of the matte paintings that they were using and some of the techniques and it's just it's just incredibly fascinating and and it, you know, stands as this like landmark moment in cinema. And I'm really glad we got to cover it in the way that we did. I think we're, we're on into our vote now. Yeah, I think it's time. We're, we'll get to settle this thing once and for all. Do you want to start off? Because it sounds like you already have revealed where you're going. <laughs> yeah, I'll start off. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I just spent the entire movie talking about all the details that I find to be interesting. I mean, just just somebody working in the industry just to look at this history. And like, this is a film that I studied in, in film school. And it just, it, it came at such a time that it was... It was hugely influential and continues to be um, this, like like I've said, landmark touchstone moment in, in America's history and film history. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the myths that go on with it, some of the tragedies are, are like pretty unspeakable and, and are unfortunate. And like, you know, sounds like a lot of these directors didn't put their foot down when they could have and or do the right thing in many cases. But the movie is just like it, it, the way that it's touched everyone that we've ever like you know there are people who haven't seen it clearly but like i think of relatives that are no longer with us that yeah. love this movie you know what i mean that knew this movie the the my parents talked about it and we watched it together and you know my grandparents and stuff like that so it, it just it has this really timeless place in my yeah. heart i think so that's what i'm gonna go with the film totally understandable there's this moment we talked about it early where Dorothy comes up to the door, opens it, and we see color. And I was thinking about, I, I saw a breakdown that was talking about how that was achieved and how it was someone painted sepia. Like it was, an, yep. and they swapped her well, out. The whole room was. Yeah. The whole room was painted sepia to look like it was that other kind of film, but it wasn't. It was the special shot. And then they had her, like, a Judy Garland runs into the scene as, as the camera passes through the door. 
and just like that kind of magic that is achieved uh, is is really un- unbelievable. So I knew going in, I was like, oh, this is going to be a tall task for this book to live up to it. But I want to give the book, I want to be the guy who like gives the book its chance and like really think like, you know, try not to be stuck in the modern day and think about like how much it owes to the book and how much Frank Baum invented. And, you know, I was I, for a while I was sticking with it. And then, uh, you know, I was noticing things that I didn't love, like the the message of the movie did get changed a little bit. Right. Like we've talked about and certain things. It was all dream ending was introduced um, to the movie. But um, none of that, none of that. I keep coming back to that scene, that scene of going to the door and opening it up and, and thinking about how groundbreaking that was and monumental and like nothing honestly like none of that other stuff can really touch that so I, it is it is the movie who am i to argue, argue with maurice sendak he's right um this is one where the movie was was better um but it was closer it, it was closer than i than i thought it was going to be i thought it was just going to be like you know not even not even a contest but um yeah it's the movie well, uh, let us know if you agree with us or yeah. not. You know, we're, we're always interested in hearing your opinions. We're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And make sure you stick around because at the end, we're going to reveal our next project. Yeah, next project, which I'm super excited to uh, reveal because it's one I'm really into. Um, also, let us know in the form of a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode. Um, it's a great way to get the word out and, uh, you know, leave us five stars and, and uh, you know, just a comment. Let us know you listened to this one and that you liked it. If you wanted to support the podcast in another way, consider checking out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And on there, we put out monthly episodes, usually adaptation adjacent, but sometimes we get experimental. The most recent one, we talked about Luke's journey querying his his new novel that, yeah. uh, you know, it was a lot of fun to hear his perspective on that. And and it's cool if you're interested, if you're a, a writer who wants to know what, what you have to look forward to and, and what it's like. Uh, or just want to follow along with his journey. That's that's over there. Yeah, I think uh, I mentioned last time that there was this like movie that was really weird I had heard of. I think it's called The Return to Oz. I was looking into it a little bit, and um, it's one that I think I would love to do as a bonus episode. It looks really weird. Um, so that's the kind of stuff you get on Patreon. So yeah, we'd love your support over there. Um, also, we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, we have traveled the yellow brick road, yeah. and we are... Uh, on our way home because there's no place like home. Well, but instead we're gonna go stay at a cabin um, where nothing bad ever happens uh, because we're going to the cabin at the end of the world. You might know as Knock at the Cabin Door, I believe, or Knock at the Cabin might just be the name of it. Um, new film coming out, uh, directed by M Night Shyamalan, right? Uh, you know, sort of infamous director in a way, but also like. I mean, massive in his day, and honestly, he's making a big resurgence, so I'm excited. Yeah, and and he, I'm so excited to see what he does with an adaptation and what he does. I mean, we saw him try and adapt Avatar, I guess, but like this is a different kind of adaptation adapted from a novel. But honestly, that's not even why I'm excited about it. I love Dave Bautista, so when I see him in that trailer, I'm excited, but like that's not even why. I love Paul Tremblay's writing. Um, he's, a, he's an author, full disclosure, I've met a couple times, um, so it, I'm a little biased. Um, but I love his writing. I thought we were going to be talking about um, Head Full of Ghosts as, as the first adaptation made for his work, but it, this one got out first. Uh, I still think we're going to get a Head Full of Ghosts adaptation, I hope. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to get into him as an author because I think he's really cool. And, and to me, he feels like a successor in some ways to Stephen King. Um, which we can talk wow. about. Stephen King and him cool. have, have I assume, to have developed a friendship. 
Um, so it's really cool, and it's something we can touch back in on uh, next week, but uh, going to be very different uh, than what we just read and, and watched here. But that's the nature of this podcast. We kind of bounce around. We try and do different genres. We both like a lot of different stuff. We like horror. We like sci-fi. We like fantasy. And, and you know, we, we bounce between a lot of that stuff. We like just good dramas, all kinds of stuff. So if that interests you, uh, yeah, we'd love for you to come back next week. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.